Hi again, this is Nathan, and welcome back for episode six. Getting off the street and into a stable, supportive housing situation like Myra did, or into a safe outdoor space like the one that we featured in the last episode, is a huge step forward for most people that are struggling with homelessness. But the step after that, if you can believe it, might be even more challenging. So in this episode, we'd like to get a feel for the affordable housing system. Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. Multiple pathways for a common purpose. We're looking at a human being and there's life story. 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 Hey, this is what's going on. Elevated Denver starts now. My name is Elise Matatal. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in Denver. I am currently employed at Warren Village. It's a transitional housing program for single parent families. And I have the privilege of working with all of our past residents as the alumni navigator. So I'm from Denver originally, born and raised here went to East High School on Colfax, grew up in that neighborhood and was raised by a single mom. And so in high school, I actually volunteered at Warren Village in the evening childcare program. And when I told my mom that I was volunteering there, she was like, huh, we almost lived at Warren Village. So it's close to my heart. I think I see a lot of ways in which my mom was like supported in the ways that a lot of these parents are not supported. And so trying to problem solve and think through that and like think about community and how we support single parents has been really important to me. Before we dive in, I need to set some context. When we say affordable housing system, we're describing a mix of city, state, and federal programs. These programs can overlap, and they often do, but all of the programs have different requirements that tenants have to navigate. Let's start with the Denver Housing Authority, or DHA, which owns and operates thousands of public housing units in the city, which are subsidized by a variety of programs, many with different requirements. Most public benefit systems have a cutoff income in which you're no longer eligible for that benefit. Some benefits have like a more graduated cutoff, like food stamps, you start to lose a small amount and then it eventually phases out. Most housing programs, once you make a certain income, you are no longer eligible for housing. So certain apartment complexes that we partner with, if your income goes $1 above, DHA can no longer subsidize your unit. And so you have 30 days to move because you ended up getting a raise at work. It's a really scary situation because people feel like they're making progress. They feel like they're doing well at work. They're starting to get advancement opportunities, but because they've accepted a raise, they're like losing these benefits that have kept them afloat. In policy circles, what Elise is pointing to here is known as the cliff effect, because some support programs cut off abruptly at certain levels of income, 
the impact on people who make just a little more than the program allows, but not enough to afford the thing the program is subsidizing on their own, experience a situation akin to falling off of a financial cliff. Childcare assistance is another example. Childcare in Denver is one of the most expensive in the country, and so there's just no way that people can afford childcare without childcare assistance. That means that people are having to like accept salaries that are either lower than what they should, which then impacts their eventual salary, or they're having to like find plan B options where like grandma watches, but that's not super sustainable. People are navigating this additional layer of complexity that I think the general public is not aware of. They're not really having empathy for the actual like, mental calculations that people are having to make. Like, will I lose all of this support that I had because of a very small raise at work? There's like so much moralism around accepting benefits. AMI, Area Median Income, is what these places are using, and that's based off of people's individual household size. If you look at the chart, you can have this much money. So it's different for every family and every situation, and it's updated every single year. So you might have a number in your head from three years ago when you first qualified. Turns out that's incorrect, and you've just screwed yourself, or gotten screwed, I guess. Something that we talk about a lot is folks who make a good enough salary that they end up losing all of their benefits. And so we coach people in the program around making sure that you're accepting a high enough salary that you can jump over that cliff effect. But that's sort of a privileged position to be able to negotiate a salary. Some people are not accepting a raise because that means they would lose their housing. And so people are sort of doing this like mental calculation of, should I accept this advancement opportunity that ultimately will help me professionally in the long run, but I've got two young kiddos, I don't know what's gonna happen. And so I'm watching people try to look at a crystal ball and figure it out. I'm glad that they're thinking through that because I also see the other side where people are like, you know what, I'm gonna take this opportunity and make it work, and now they're coming back to me because they lost the housing opportunity. It's heart-wrenching. To add another layer of complexity here, as soon as people move from one form of assistance to another, there is another major danger in making sure that the timing on the switch goes perfectly. We'll continue with that after the break. Stay with us. A frequent question we get about this podcast is, who funded it? Well, uh, we did. Which is to say that this is an independent production that was a labor of love. But our plan is to use this space to highlight some of the great work that sponsor organizations are doing to cultivate an elevated Denver. And if you're listening to this piece of audio, it means that there's room for us to share your story right here. We'll work with you to write a one to two minute story about the good work that you're doing and how it came to be. And then I'll read it and we'll play it right here so that more people can learn about your commitment to this community. That's good for you and it's good for us because your sponsorship will help this work and help us get it out to more people. 
If you want the details, just go to the contact page at www.elevateddenver.co and fill out the form, and we'll be in touch. Now, back to the show. Before we continue, I want to define a term that you are about to hear. Section 8 is the former, and still somewhat common, name for the Federal Housing Choice Voucher Program, which helps low-income people secure housing by essentially paying a portion of their rent. And with that, here's Elise. Generally, people are not leaving Warren Village without a next step, a next plan. Even though we say it's a two to three year program, we don't kick people out if they don't have housing. And then when they wanna leave, they can request their Section 8 voucher from DHA and then go rent in the city, which is a super incredible opportunity. It really helps people move up in self-sufficiency. You can make more money in a Section 8 voucher than you can in this project-based voucher unit. But the timing is a nightmare. If you pick a place, then DHA has to inspect the place to make sure it's like up to code and everything. Landlords get scared during that process, and you've just lost two weeks of the amount of time that you had to put in for your notice to vacate, and you can't take back your notice to vacate because they've already filled your unit. And so people are like, oh my God, I'm about to be homeless in two weeks. I've had people who lost their voucher because they couldn't get a place in time. So it's just like this incredibly complicated process in which like the stars have to align. You have to be really on people. And I have a master's degree in social work and it's taken me three years to even just understand this process. And you've got folks who have learning disabilities or English is their second language and they're having to do this process that is really, really hard. And no one is available to help you. The Section 8 certification specialist who should be the person who's helping you navigate this, they don't have time. They're totally overworked. They're just like calling place after place, trying to get in. The wait list is maybe a month and they're in a doubled up housing situation where like that person's lease is ending in two weeks. I've had folks call like 30 places and not be able to find something. These are people who are like really capable. They've navigated this system before and they're still running into these roadblocks. If someone had a full-time job, they truly could not do that. They would not have time. You'd have to take three weeks off to go look at places to navigate this paperwork, let alone like you don't have a printer to print the paperwork and the Denver Public Library where most people do print was closed for a year. There's just this whole ripple effect during the pandemic. Just this like Kafka-esque bureaucracy I have folks who did all the right things, have gotten on these affordable housing wait lists. They're like waiting to hear back. But if you don't call and update Denver Housing Authority with your new address, you'll get bumped off the list. You're actually supposed to update them every 90 days. Who's doing that? Who do you contact if you don't know your original worker, if your worker didn't work there anymore? And the office is closed and there's no phone number you can call If you call Denver Housing Authority, no one answers. There's no email that you can contact people. They don't have a worker that was assigned to them because they were just on this waiting list. But if you don't preemptively report any changes, you'll get kicked off the waiting list. And it's like a 10-year waiting list. People end up on the phone for literal days trying to get a hold of someone. 
Folks who really advocate for themselves are also the ones that workers are like, this person keeps calling me, she's so annoying. But those are the people that actually get housed. Other people who get defeated or they're trying to be nice, they don't want to make a worker feel bad, so they don't follow up. And they end up getting left aside because they're not the squeaky wheel. The unique situation of single parents is not well understood by society. To not have childcare or to not have a community that can sort of step up and take your kiddo, that is one of the biggest barriers. Their one salary is the salary that is paying for all of these things. Our society is not set up for single parent households. Interestingly, when I think about many of the folks that are doing well, they often have family support or they got into a relationship where they have two salaries. And that traps people in abusive relationships. When I think about my mom, she worked all the time. She was a private practice therapist and she had to work like 12 hour days. And so childcare, I guess we had neighbors that watched us. People are relying on their communities and it's burning them out because single parents are having to rely on grandma so much. I wanna like validate that they're doing that, but they shouldn't necessarily have to because we should be taking better care of people. This episode could use some more unpacking. So let's bring in the team discussion here. I'll start by saying, I thought it was really compelling how Elise described what it takes to get on this housing list. Where does that put people who have to navigate it when they're struggling with so many other things? And it's not like you understand it and you're done. It's dynamic. And so like the, the levels shift constantly. The different rules are changing with different policy decisions in the county level, the state level, the federal level. It's rough. The other thing I think in this episode that's really important to highlight is something Elise brings up, which is the cliff effect. You make too much money to qualify for any public assistance, but you don't make enough to actually make ends meet. There's a huge gap there. That's why we talk about self-sufficiency instead of poverty as a measure of where people are at. Because self-sufficient is that you can make ends meet without needing public assistance based on the cost of living where you are, versus the measure of poverty, which is a federal measure under which a lot of public assistance programs are determined. A lot of people, they could make $1 more an hour and they move out of eligibility for public assistance programs. To make it safe to talk about that inside of an employment environment so that it can be factored in, so that people can just know, like, we're not going to give you this raise yet, but we intend at the end of the next year or whatever to help you leap the cliff effect. It's a huge barrier. And so to really intentionally know what people need to leap over the cliff and try to help them do that when they've earned that, I think that's something that all employers across all sectors could be a lot more intentional about. And you wonder what happens If there's an opportunity for someone to advance, earn a dollar or two more an hour, and they decide they can't take that because it will put them at risk of losing their benefits, where does that place them with their employer? 
Does their employer say, hey, I tried to give you an opportunity and you didn't want it. And therefore, I may never give you an opportunity again. Or I needed a manager, you're a perfect fit, you didn't take the job. Now I'm going to cut back on your hours in your current position. Those are real things that happen, real struggles that are happening all around us all the time. The number is 40%, right? 40% of our neighbors are in a place where they're dealing with this stuff. And that was before the pandemic, which you know has only exacerbated those numbers in those situations. As daunting as it is, many of our neighbors are finding a way through the system and gaining access to the precious help that it can eventually provide. Working with Elise, our guest for this episode, two more of our neighbors stepped up to share their frustrating and hopeful journeys. This is Carmen's room. Do you like having your own room? Yes. It's been a long time since I had my own room. Are you having cartwheels in here? Uh, yeah. I can even do this. See? Whoa. Okay. That's pretty good. So far, we've mostly focused on the experience of being unhoused as an adult without children. But when you add young kids into the mix, it changes everything. Episode 7 is up next. Stay with us. Thank you to Nathan Church, our editor, sound designer, and barista. Production was provided by Havy Pro Cinema. Elevated Denver is produced and critiqued by Tony Minardi. Strategy, planning, and social distancing are provided by Jonna Flood. The all-local music you heard in this episode is thanks to our music supervisor, Zach Warkenton, and features Ono Khan and Sarah Slate. Thank you also to China Califf, who helped to develop the idea for this production. I'm your director and host, Nathan Havey. If you want to go deeper, you'll find background and extras at elevateddenver.co, like Colorado. And while you're there, jump on the email list so we can be in touch and hopefully get your help, too. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver. Denver.